But uh, we're going to be continuing today in our, uh, our series through the book of Joshua. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 20 today. But as we're getting started today, I want to do a little bit of, of cliff noting. You guys know what cliff notes are? You just, yeah, some of you are like, yeah, that's how I got through high school. I love cliff notes, right? You give me that thousand-page book to read, and we're like, okay, I'll, I'll go get the cliff notes that's 20 pages long, and I'll, I'll read that instead, right? So last week, we ended in, in Joshua chapter 10, okay? And we talked about how Joshua prayed that, that the sun would stand still, and it did. The sun stood still. Uh, so Joshua, he prayed this big, bold, audacious prayer, and we talked about praying and prayer and about us asking God to, to do big, bold, audacious things for us and in us and through us. And so we, this week we're in Joshua chapter 20. So chapters 11 through 19, I'm going to give you the, the Cliff Notes version if you're okay with that. Israel conquers the promised land in these chapters, and then Israel divides up the promised land amongst the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? So we spent a lot of time going through piece by piece the first 10 chapters. Chapters 11 to 19 is just the finishing up of Israel conquering the rest of the promised land, which is just more cities and more conquering, and then they divide it up amongst themselves. So we're going to get into chapters 20 and 21, and it's this really cool picture in chapter 20 of God creating what are called the Levite cities or the, the cities of the priest. And what God does is he puts these Levite cities all throughout Israel so he can, he can kind of symbolically declare with these cities being all throughout Israel that I'm going to dwell amongst my people. And so this was the first time, by the way, in like Joshua 20, this is the first time in history that the nation of Israel is actually an established nation. They actually have walls and houses. I mean, they've been in tents for like 40 years, and before that, they were just in Egypt, okay? So this is the first time that they are an actually established nation. They have houses with brick and mortar, and God says to them, I am going to dwell amongst you. And so that's where we're going to pick it up in Joshua chapter 20. Joshua chapter 20, the first three verses go like this. Then the Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. That the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. Now, I need to do a little work for us here as we're getting into this chapter and lay a little bit of a historical foundation for us uh, before we dig any deeper into chapter 20. Uh, if I don't, you're probably going to be a little bit confused about what some of these words mean. There's two specific words, or, or really in the English language, they'd be, they be phrases here. But the two the things I want to explain to you are the cities of refuge and the avenger of blood, okay? So going back to Exodus, what happens in Exodus is that Israel is leaving Egypt. That's what the, the word Exodus actually means, the ex, exit is, exit sign. It's the same root word of Exodus, you know, to leave, to go out of. Uh, and it is a story of Israel finding their freedom. And as we get to the end of Exodus and we get into the books of Leviticus and the Numbers and Deuteronomy, God begins to, to lay out his law for, for this new nation, for this new people that are his people. And in Exodus chapter 21, we hear for the very first time what the, the idea that is going to be called the cities of refuge, okay? So Exodus chapter 21 verse 12 reads like this. It says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. In other words, what God is saying here in Exodus, 
and he's going to say it again in, in Numbers 35, by the way, and in Deuteronomy 4, and in Deuteronomy 19. But God, God is, is laying out his law, and in this he says that if anyone kills someone else, then the punishment for that is a capital offense. Right? So if there's this premeditated homicide or aggravated manslaughter, what God is saying here in, in the beginning of, of the Old Testament books here is it's a life for a life. Right? That, that was the punishment. And then in verse 13, what he says is, if, but if it's involuntary, if it's an accident, then it's still a really big deal, okay? And I, I just want to say this. Anytime a human life is lost, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Why? Well, you go back to Genesis, and it tells us that, man, we were made in the image of God, right? Every life matters. Every life counts. That's, that's why I believe as a church we should, we should be, you know, fighting for, you know, life and and we should be declaring that every single human being that was formed was formed in the image of God and is, and is precious. And so God says in Exodus 21, if you kill someone on purpose, the punishment for that is a capital offense. It's a life for a life. But if it is an accident, then, then what God says he's going to do is it's to lay out these cities of refuge. Because you're still guilty. Like the punishment is still the same. It's still life for a life, Okay. A life was lost. It's still a big deal. But instead of God punishing the person who accidentally took life, God is going to give them a city of refuge, a place that they can flee to, a place they can find protection. The other word I, I need to just get us on board with before we keep moving here is this idea of the Avenger of blood. Now, this is not a Marvel character, all right? It's not a comic book character here. It's not the Avengers. Uh, but uh, the, the word Avenger of blood, it comes from this Hebrew word, which is Goel Hadam. And the word goel, in, in the Hebrew word, it can mean two different things. It can mean redeemer or it can mean avenger, okay? And there's two different lanes or two different ways that the word goel is used in the Old Testament. The more romantic version of, of that word, of, of that redeemer, the goel, is what we would call the kinsman redeemer. If you know the, the story in the book of Ruth, there's this romantic love story where Ruth becomes a widow. And then this man, Boaz, becomes her kinsman redeemer. Okay, it's the same word as this, this avenger of blood here, by the way. That he comes, he marries Ruth and provides for her and protects her as a widow. And he ushers her into his house and she becomes his bride. He is the redeemer of this widow. Okay, now here's the other use of the word Goel Hadam. It means the avenger of blood, which means this. Basically, it means this. If you were to kill my brother and I am the Goel Hadam of my family, then I have the legal right to go find you, to put you on trial, and then to take you outside of the city and have you stoned. That would be a legal job in the nation of Israel. Like, hey, what do you do? Oh, I'm an avenger of blood. That's my job. Right? That, that was an actual thing. Like, that was what people did. That was a position that people held. I need you to understand this. It was, it was a big deal to them, okay? So what's happening here, what we need to realize is a couple of things. Number one is this. God has a high, high view of the sanctity of life. A high view of the sanctity of life. That if you were to kill someone on purpose, it was punishable by death. And if you were to kill someone on accident, because God has such a high view of life, it was still a problem, but God was going to solve and give protection. The second thing that we've got to understand is that, that this was a life-for-a-life -life punishment. And it's going to come into play later when you understand what I'm, what the, where this is leading. The only way to avenge the death of someone is the death of another person. It's a life-for-a-life -life offense. The last thing we need to understand before we move on is this. It's the fact that God set up refuge in his plan before he even gave the land to the nation of Israel. 
And I think that says a ton about the heart of God, don't you? He set up refuge before they even had the land. Like before God even gave Israel the promised land. In fact, years before this, God tells Moses that when you get the promised land, I want you to provide refuge and protection for my people. And as we dig in today, and we're going to talk about being the, the city of refuge and what does it look like if the church today becomes the city of refuge. What I want you to hear over and over and over again today is this, especially, especially if you walked in here broken and hurt. It's that God provided refuge for us before we ever even knew that we needed it because he loves us that much. Verse 4 continues, and it, sa it says this, Joshua 24, he says, He shall flee to one of those cities, the cities of refuge, and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with him. So this offender would come to the city of refuge. There were six of them all throughout the nation of Israel, okay? Six of these cities. And he would come to the gates, the, the town square, if you will, and he would, he would talk to the elders, the leaders of the city, and be like, this is what happened. Like, okay, I, I accidentally killed my friend. We were building a house. I dropped a tool. It hit him in the head, and now he's dead, okay? I didn't mean to do it, but here I am, right? Here I am, and, and the avenger of blood is coming after me. Here I am. Please protect me. And what would happen is the, the elders would assume his innocence, and they would invite him into the city, and they would give him a place to stay, and they would give him food, because, by the way, when people flee, they don't take anything with them, do they, right? So he comes with the clothes on his back, and the elders would welcome him into the city. They would give him a place to live. They would give him food. They would provide for him. And, and as, as I was reading this text, I couldn't help but think about the citizens of this city. Like, just imagine, right? You're, you and your family, you've been traveling nomads for like 40 years in the wilderness, in the desert. And then you have this season of war where all the men are out, you know, in, in battle. And, and I'm, I'm sure there were, there were lives lost there. And then God finally gives you a home. But guess what? Your home is not just your home. You now live in a city of refuge. Meaning that every single time somebody accidentally kills somebody, they're coming to your town. And it's your city's job to provide for them, to feed them, and to give them a room. I mean, think about that. I mean, like, hey, Martha, this is Ted. He accidentally killed his neighbor. He's just going to live with us now, right? <laughs> It's an uncomfortable situation. This is, this is not like, and, and I was just thinking about these citizens. You know, they could have complained, right? This was kind of Israel's MO. They complained a lot. They were complainers. But, but we don't get any record of them complaining about this. And what I, I probably realized is what they really did was this. They realized that God has, has blessed us so much, and I think God has blessed me in order to be a blessing, the citizens of the cities of refuge, to survive in that city, you had to adopt the mentality that God has blessed us so richly so that we can richly bless others. You see, there were nomads in, in tents, and now they had this home with this walled, fortified city, and it was such a safe place that people would flock to their city for safety. And these, these citizens had to adopt this mentality of God has blessed me so richly so I can richly bless others. And I was, as I was reading this, this text this week, I begin to think about what are the implications for the church. And I'm just going to read this text. It's not up there, but I want to read this again. Instead of the word city, I'm going to put the word church in there. And I want you to hear this and hear it this way. The offender shall flee to the church and shall stand at the entrance of the church and explain his case to the elders of that church. Then they shall take him into the church and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. 
You see, to survive as, as a citizen, you had to realize God has blessed me to bless others. And I believe to be an active part of the church, you have to adopt this mentality that God has richly blessed me so I can richly bless others. Like, like the reason that we even exist, every single time that we open the doors, every single time that we, we gather together and we, we worship and we open the doors, what we are saying is essentially this, is that if you can get here, if you're broken, if you're hurt, whatever the case may be, we have a place for you. We have a place for you. Some of you walked in here today thinking, I am so jacked up right now. Like, I'm so messed up in my life. And here's what I want you to do. Real quick, just look to your left, look to your right, look around. Look around. You're amongst great company. You blend in really well, right? Because, and this is just, honestly, if, if you walked in here today and you're like, man, I'm not messed up at all. I got it all together. Just wait. It's coming, all right? Just give me a couple weeks. Come talk to me, and, and I guarantee your life is going to be screwed. Because here's the reality. We are a group. The church is a group of broken people who are on all of us in need of a Savior. Every single one of us. And you have to realize that God has blessed us to be a blessing, that God has brought us out of death to life so that we can go back and we can rescue those in need. And what we realize when we, when we gather together is that we are all in need, of, a desperate need of a Savior, every single one of us. And I just want to encourage you to, to continue to be the church that loves the least of these, that loves the least of these. And if you're in this room and you're thinking, man, I'm broken, I, I'm, I'm just not, here's what I want you to hear. If, if that is you right now, if that is you, you're in this room, you're saying, I'm broken, we don't expect anything from you. If that's you right now, we only expect things for you. It is the role and the responsibility of this church to love the broken. That's why we exist. Here's the truth about church. If you're healthy, you're a caregiver, right? If you're hurt, then you've got to wave the white flag and let people know you're hurt. If you're healthy, you should be a caregiver. You should be serving and loving the broken. And if you're hurt and broken, you've got to wave your flag. That is what church is all about, being one of those two people all the time. You're either healing or being healed. One of the two. Verse 5, it goes on and says this. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. Now the city's job was this. The city's job was to stand between the accuser and the offender. Now here's what you need to know. Both the accuser and the offender had very, very legitimate arguments. Both of them. What do you mean, Pastor? What are you talking about? Okay, well, the accuser shows up, the, the avenger of blood, the Goel Hadam. He shows up and it's like, that guy killed my relative. A legitimate argument, all right? The avenger of blood has a legal status and a legal right to come and avenge the blood. So he would stand up, the accuser would stand up, and he'd say, he killed my relative. I saw him do it. There's no way he could say he didn't do it. And in that legal court system, this was a fantastic argument, and it was true, okay? And then you had the offender go, you know what, you're right. I did kill your relative, but I didn't do it on purpose. I've never had an evil thought about your relative in my life. In fact, your relative and I, we were good friends. It was a complete and total accident. Now, here, here's the truth. The avenger and the offender both had legitimate arguments. They were both right. And the job of the city was to step in and provide protection, to step in between the accuser and the offender. 
And I believe it's the job of the church today to do the same thing, to stand in between the accusations of the enemy and the excuses of the offender. And here's the truth. Our enemy, Satan, the devil, he comes against us with real legitimate arguments. Like when the enemy shows up and he says, you don't deserve God's love and you're not good enough and it's your decisions that got you in the place that you're in, can I just be honest with you? Those are actually really legitimate, truthful statements. He's right. Like we do not deserve God's love. We don't. And yet somehow, for some reason, God chooses to love us anyway. And when the enemy shows up or says that you can't do anything good, he's right. In fact, the Bible says that our best efforts, apart from the cross, they're just like filthy rags. And when the enemy shows up and says, you got yourself here, he's probably right. Because if you look back at your life and all the decisions you've made and all the, the stupid stuff you've done, it's got you in a pretty bad spot. The enemy has legitimate arguments. He does. And the offender, well, we have legitimate excuses. You know, of course I'm walking down that path. If you only knew my story, if you only knew how awful my parents were at loving me as a kid, if you only knew how bad my circumstances are, if you just knew that, that all I was trying to do was have a good time and that became an addiction, you, if you just knew you wouldn't hate me, you would understand. So the church's job is to, to stand between the truthful accusations of the enemy and all the excuses that we, the offenders, make. And to stand in and go, you know what? Satan is right. You don't deserve God's love. And you are right. You had it really, really, really bad. But God, who is rich in mercy, loves us anyway. But God, who is, who is rich in mercy, has provided for us an opportunity to bring all of our excuses to the table and to go, God, I have all of these really good reasons why I have messed up my life. And why things have fallen apart. And it's the church's job to come and to stand between the enemy and the offender and go, both are true, but the cross is truer. Both are legitimate, but Jesus on the cross has solved and dealt with all of the accusations of the enemy and has forgiven all of the offenses. All of them. I need to say this before we move forward. Refuge. Refuge is not the eradication of judgment or the removal of, of your wrongdoing or our wrongdoing. I'm going to say that again. Refuge is not the eradication of judgment or the removal of our wrongdoing. It is actually the recognition that the accusation is true and my offense is far worse than I'm willing to admit. Now, let's just be honest for a second. When we get to the point of confessing our offenses, like our sins... Most of us never get to that point where we're just on our knees broken saying, God, it's my sins that put you on the cross. Most of us don't get there. Usually we get to the point of confession and being like, here, God, here's all the junk in my life. And we get right to that point where we're about to kind of own it. And then we're like, but it's not really my fault. And here's why. And so refuge, is, it's not this removal of wrongdoing. Refuge is not the removal of judgment. If you look at the text in verse 6, it says, He shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgments. See, judgment is still happening. It's still happening. And yet the city's job is to step in and provide protection. That God, who is rich in mercy, gives us the church to stand with us in the midst of our consequences. To stand with us in the midst of the pain of our decision and in the brokenness of our world. 
Refuge is not the removal of consequences. It's the, refuge is the removal of guilt. I'm going to say that again. Refuge is not the removal of consequences. It's the removal of guilt. Now, it, it would be like if I called the IRS tomorrow, and this is not a true story, by the way. It's just an example. But if I called the IRS tomorrow and was like, you know, I just got to confess to you guys, you know, I've been cheating on my taxes for like 10 years, and I just feel really guilty. And uh, can I just, I, I just got to get that off my chest. Can I just confess that and, and tell that to you guys? And you're like, yeah, absolutely. But, but you see, my, my wrongdoing, my sin still has consequences because they still want their what? They still want their money, right? They still want their money. It will remove the guilt, but not the consequences. The truth is, this is the truth. Every single sin that we commit has consequences. Every single one of them. They have consequences. You see, sometimes, this is what I believe, sometimes God leaves pain in our life because it's the only way to get us to change. Like some of you, some of you, man, you have friends and family that you're looking at, you're going, man, do you, how do you not see it? Like your, your life is a train wreck waiting to happen, right? And the truth is they don't see it because they don't feel any pain. And without the pain, it, it, sometimes it takes pain to give us the desire to change. And sometimes God leaves pain in our life to lead us to restoration. You see, the, the, the person, the offender in this text, they were in exile, it says, until the high priest died. So if you accidentally killed somebody when there was a really old high priest, you had a short exile. If you killed somebody accidentally at the beginning of a high priest reign, well, another story, right? But, but this person, they would find themselves in pain because they were exiled. They were separated from their family. They were separated from everything they knew. And sometimes I think God goes, hey, you know what? That pain in your life, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because without the pain, without the exile, this person would not have had to lean in to the dependency and had to lean into the, the, the nature of Jesus. And so some of us, we're walking through pain, and you're going, God, would you just take the pain away? And God's going, no, I'm not going to remove that pain because that pain is the only thing drawing you to me. It's the only thing that's drawing you to me. See, sometimes God lets us make decisions that bring pain, and sometimes God, you know, uses that pain to bring us to him. And some of you, man, some of you are, are in some exile and you don't want to be there, but it's good for you. Some of you maybe messed up your, your marriage life or messed up your dating life so bad and maybe God is trying to force you into the exile of singleness and you're fighting him tooth and nail, right? And you're fighting with everything that you are and God's like, I'm just trying to heal you. And some of you, you're, you're, you're trying to, God is trying to exile you from some friends and from some places that just lead you down a path that's going to destroy you, and you don't want to be in that exile. But God is like, you know, I'm just trying to remove you from that situation so you would define your dependency on Jesus. And some of us are so jealous and envious that, that what God needs to put you in is an exile from Pinterest, an exile from HGTV, right? And we laugh, and it, it, it's funny. But the truth is we, we begin to fill our minds and our eyes with things that we want to the point that we miss the only thing that we need. And some of us, some of us, God is trying to push us into the exile of solitude and, and silence because the noise in our life is so loud that we cannot even hear the whispers of the one who loves us most. See, sometimes pain in our life is actually God's way of going, let go of the world. Let go of the world. If you are clinging to the things of this world, then we have no hands left to cling to the king of this world. 
If you are clinging and embracing the created and you're just latching on to the created, to the things of this world, you have no room left in your hands to grab a hold of the king of the world, to grab a hold of the creator of the world. Some of the reasons that we come in here and we're broken and hurt and we're needing care is that we have clung so hard to the things of this world that we that are, are just fleeting and they can't fulfill us in any way and that we come in here and we don't even have room in our hands to, to raise the white flag and say, I'm hurting, I need help. We, we, our, our arms are so full with the things of this world that we can't even reach our hands up to our Heavenly Father who desperately wants to come in and give us refuge. You see, pain is actually sometimes God's blessing on us. And sometimes in the midst of pain, it will draw us to him, draw us to the church of refuge. And the mercy of the Lord drawing us to the church of refuge, he would, he would meet us in this place and he would go, you see the things of this world? You don't even need those things. You don't need them. The one thing that we need is the one thing that is bigger than this world. Verse 7, and continues and it says this. So they set apart Kadesh and Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. I don't know why they couldn't just say Hebron. I don't, I don't get that, but that in the city, hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland, from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. Now, there were six cities in there. There are also rivers and people that were mentioned. You probably don't know which one's which. It doesn't really matter. But here's the cool thing. God tells Moses all the way back in Exodus Put six cities. I want you to take six cities and put them all throughout Israel. And they do that. And, and this, I'm telling you, man, this is just how good and awesome God is. You could not be anywhere in the country of Israel and not be within one day's travel of a city of refuge. No matter where you were in the entire nation of Israel, you were always within one day's travel of a city of refuge. It's as if God is, is saying and going, you're going to need this, and I'm going to put it close enough to you that when you need it, you can come and get it. He, he knew, and he, he made a way before they even knew that they needed it. Verse 9, it says, these were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die with the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Now, I don't, I don't want you to miss this. All the people of Israel... And for the stranger traveling through the country. Right? That's what sojourning means. What does that mean? That means that God set these places of refuge up for all people. Everybody. That, that all people were welcome to flee to this place of refuge. That you did not have to be a Jew. You could just be a, a stranger traveling through the land. And God says, the refuge is open for everybody. And I believe that's what, what the, the church should be. A movement for all people. That we will be a place for all people, no matter what your story is and, and where God has, has brought you from, to come and find refuge. Here's the big idea. In his mercy, God created refuge for all people before we even knew it, before we even knew that we had a need for it in his mercy. And mercy simply means this. Let me, let me explain this real quick. Mercy is when God withholds from us what we truly deserve. That In his mercy, God has given all of us refuge before we even knew that we needed it. That is why the church exists, to be a place for broken people to flee to. 
That the church exists even before we know we need it. And in his grace, in his grace, God provided salvation that we could never achieve on our own. Mercy is this. Mercy is withholding from us what we deserve. Grace is giving to us what we could never earn on our own. What we could never earn on our own. So in his mercy, God gave us the church to be a place where we could find refuge. And in his grace, God gave us his very own son to die on the cross to give us salvation which you could not achieve on your own. You just couldn't. Romans 5, verse 8, one of my favorite verses, it says it this way. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the truth about everybody that's listening to this message and will listen to this message. Christ died for you before you ever knew that you needed it. Like, like literally over 2,000 years ago, he died before you were even born. And so God loved us so much that he gave us mercy, and he does not give us what we deserve. Here's what we deserve. Romans also says the wages of sin is death. So the moment we sin, the moment we do anything against the, the perfect will of a holy God, in that moment, as soon as we sin, we deserve to die. That's what we deserve, right? And God actually gives us mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And then he also gives us grace. Instead of giving us death, he offers us life through the cross. He offers us life. So here's the truth. Mercy without grace is really just a prolonging of justice. It's just putting it off. What do you mean? Well, mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve. Grace is when God gives us what we could not earn. Judgment or justice is when God gives us exactly what we do deserve. I'm going to take my kids for an example, and this is not a true story either, but I'm just going to paint a picture for you. My kids are pretty good kids, but like all kids, they have their moments, right? So let's just say they start mouthing off to their mother, all right? What they deserve when they're disrespecting their mother and they're mouthing off to their mother and they're not listening, they deserve a good old-fashioned butt-whooping, right? A spanking. Now, some of you are like, Pastor, I can't believe you said that. Well, sometimes there's a time and place for everything, all right? They deserve a whooping because they're talking back to their mother. They're disrespecting their mother. Now, mercy is when I go, I'm not going to whoop you right now. I'm going to whoop you later when we get home. That's mercy, okay? See, mercy without grace is just the prolonging of justice. So they're just going to get that spanking later, but it's still coming, right? It's just putting it off, okay? Here's what grace looks like. Grace would say, I'm not going to whoop you right now. I'm not going to whoop you later. And in fact, come on, let's go get ice cream because I want to show you what grace is all about. They don't deserve grace. They definitely did not earn that ice cream. They deserve to be spanked, right? But what they get is forgiveness and lavished upon with love. So the truth is, mercy without grace is just prolonging of judgment. So in his mercy, God gives us the, the church, and in his grace, God gives us his son on the cross. He doesn't just prolong justice, but God actually steps in, and God takes that justice on himself. On himself. Now don't miss verse 6. Verse 6 says, he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who was high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town, his own home from which he came. You see, atonement and forgiveness does not take place, it says, until the high priest dies. Why? Numbers 35 says this. Numbers 35 says this. You shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. You see, the manslayer, the, the person who had committed a crime, the, they had killed somebody. They had killed another person. The manslayer could not go free until the penalty of death was paid. 
And the high priest, who, who represented the entire Old Testament Levitical law, when the high priest died, the death of the high priest covered every sin of the manslayer. You can't miss the gospel here. The gospel message is this. The city could only provide refuge. The city could only provide a place of mercy. Only the death of the high priest could provide salvation. Only the death of the high priest could provide grace. The same is true here in the church. The church cannot save you. The church cannot save you. Now that's a theological declaration that I am making that may rub against some of the churches that you grew up in. That said the church can save you. Just be good enough, attend enough, do enough of this, do enough of that. I'm here to tell you the church cannot save you. The church can only be a refuge for you to come and to find the only one who can save you. The church cannot save you. Only Jesus can. This church does not exist for its own name, but it exists and it only exists for the name of Jesus Christ. You see, we are here to point to Jesus over and over and over again because you and I, all of us, need a high priest to atone for our sins. Hebrews chapter 4 says it this way. It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, Jesus, who is fully God, took on flesh and dwelt among us, as the Bible says, and he was tempted with every sin that we are tempted with. And yet the Bible says he did not sin. And his sacrifice, his sacrifice for us covered all of our sins. Verse 16 of the same chapter says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? Grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, just like Joshua chapter 20, you and I, you and I, we, we, we stand with sin and we stand with guilt. And the only thing that can take away our, our guilt and grant us freedom is the death of the high priest. And our high priest, his name is Jesus. And we don't need another high priest. We have the death of the one who was perfect. And through his death, he gives us mercy, he gives us refuge, and he removes from us what we deserve. But also through his death, he gives us salvation, and he gives to us life that we could not earn on our own. The writer of Hebrews continues the same thought in chapter 9 where he says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here's what this is saying. Here's what this is saying. The entire Old Testament was built off this idea that when you sin, you would bring a particular sacrifice to cover that sin. Here's the problem with that. You would take goats and you would take bulls and you would sacrifice over and over and over and over again. And what do you got to do again next year? You sacrifice over and over and over and over again, right? But Christ, it says, who came, who was the perfect sacrifice. His death not only purified our flesh, but his death on the cross, it says, actually moves us from death to life. 
It's not just the covering of our sins, but it is the, the redemption and the regeneration of our dead hearts. That, that what Christ did was greater than what the entire sacrificial system could ever do. Verse 15 says this, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Just like Joshua chapter 20, verse 6, the high priest's death covers the, the sins and the transgressions. Verse 27 of Hebrews 9, it says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. As, we, as we're closing and wrapping this thing up, I'm getting ready to land this plane, I want to bring us back to the central truth. That, that God in his mercy gave us the church to be a place of refuge. To be a place that we can come running to broken. But the, the church cannot save you. The church cannot redeem you. Your attendance and your, your good behavior and all that stuff, all that can do is mask a deep need that your dead heart becomes alive. The church, you know, the church can come around you and can support you and can hold you up. But what we really need, the Bible says, is not to be held up. What we really need is to be brought to life. Hebrews says it is appointed for man to die once. And I'm telling you right now, the, the death rate is hovering right around 100%. It's true, right? And then it says after that, Hebrews says, comes judgment. To which automatically most of us are thinking, why are you judging me, Right? Why would, you, why would you judge me? Well, the Bible says we're all going to be judged based upon our sin. And our sin is simply this. It's anything we've done against the will of a perfect and holy God. So here's what that means. It means every sin you ever meant to do. Just think about your life and the things that I, I meant to do that are wrong, right? But it doesn't just stop there. It also covers the, the things that you neglected to do, the times where you knew what was right but you didn't do it. It also covers the things that, that you were completely ignorant of that were even in your life that you had no idea about. See, sin is anything we do on purpose, it's anything we neglect to do, and it's anything that we're ignorant of that we did that is against the holy and perfect will of God. So all of us stand in the exact same place as Joshua chapter 20. You see, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this. He says, you've heard it said, of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So here's the truth. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you, you've heard it said, don't, don't murder. It's far worse than that. If you've ever been angry at someone, if you've ever called someone a fool, if you've ever had a spirit of anger come up in you, then you stand condemned, whether you meant to or not. We stand before a, a holy and pure and just God, unable to cover our own sin. We just can't. See, this is the reality. Outside of the high priest, outside of the high priest, there is no salvation. There's no salvation outside of the high priest. And Numbers, as it talks about the city of refuge, it says this. I want to wrap this up. It says, And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. 
In other words, if the person, the offender, left the covering of the city of refuge, he was still liable for his guilt. Verse 28. For he must remain in his city of refuge until when? Until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to his land of possession. What does this mean for us? It means this. It means this. Outside of the covering of the sacrifice of the blood spilt by Jesus on the cross, outside of Jesus Christ as our high priest, there is no salvation. There's none. And it is the church's job to open the doors and to be the place of refuge. But it is not the church's job to save. It is the church's job to point to the high priest, to point to Jesus. That that we are forever indebted to the high priest. That we are forever covered by the blood of the high priest. And here's the gospel. The gospel is not that you and I are bad and we we need to do better, but it's far worse than that. The gospel is really that we are dead and we cannot undie ourselves. The gospel is this, that we are exhausted, and we are exhausted by trying to do better. And and the only thing that we get is more fatigue and more tired and more worn out, and we just find ourselves going, I am dead, and I cannot resurrect myself. I'm guilty of sin. I stand before the congregation confessing. I've recognized my brokenness, and and it is the job of the church to go on, come on in here. The church is not the answer. Jesus and Jesus alone is the answer. The gospel is that I am dead in my sins and only by the stripes of Jesus am I healed. Only by Jesus on the cross am I healed. Only by the death and the resurrection of the high priest, Jesus Christ is life found. And so I want to I invite you to respond to this today. And so I want to ask everybody just to bow your heads and close your eyes where you're at. Just close your eyes, bow your heads, and And I'm going to pray here in a second, but I believe there's some in this room today. There's some in this room today where where you may have found refuge. You may have found mercy. But today, maybe Jesus, he's holding out to you grace. That what you deserve is death. What you get is refuge. That what you cannot earn is life on your own. And Today, it is time to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to take on the sacrifice of the high priest as your life. And so today, if you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus, to recognize your guilt, to confess your sins, to surrender to Jesus as your salvation, as I'm getting ready to pray here, I just want to invite you to raise your hand in the air. Everybody's eyes are closed. Nobody's going to see you. Just extend it to the sky. And what I want you to do right now as you're raising your hand to God, I just want you to say to him, God, I surrender. Lord, I'm yours. I give up. I'm done fighting. Take me. I cannot save myself. Only by the blood on the cross am I saved. With your hand in the air, I just want you to confess to to God right now that he is your Savior. Let's pray. Lord, God, we love you. We love you that that you save men and women like us. (laughs) We love you that that you have created this place, this church as a place of refuge. And a place for us just to come humbly before you. God, I pray that we as a church, that that, that we exist to rest in your presence and and that if we are healthy, that that we're going to be caregivers and that we're hurting and broken, that that we, we wave the flag that we need help. 
God, save us. Save us. God, I, I pray that you would dwell amongst us just like the cities of refuge. Just like the Levite cities, would your presence dwell among us? God, we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus.